Father, we rejoice. We rejoice today as we gather together. We rejoice not only that Christ was born, but how wonderful, how marvelous His love in dying on the cross for us, for our sins. Father, I pray that you would feed us today, that you'd give us what we need, which is Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the sermons over the past um, several weeks, and really we do this every Christmas season in one way or another, um, the men here of the church have led us to look at the amazingness of the incarnation, that Christ came in the flesh, the, the Christ the Messiah, the Savior, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. That's simply an unbelievable statement. I say it's unbelievable because without the gift of faith from God the Father Himself, we would not believe. Well, every December, um, we are reminded of the ghosts of Christmas past of Dickens and Charlie Brown, of Burl Ives and Red Ryder BB guns. In and of themselves, they're all good things. We're reminded of Christmas celebrations and family traditions. But we also look all around us and we see distress and anguish and darkness. The year was approximately 725 B.C. God's chosen people have, by this point in history, long been split into two different nations, the kingdom of Judah to the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. And it was Israel who faced threats from, from the north of their borders from the evil and aggressive Assyrian Empire. The previous Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, had built the empire to the peak of its power. And now his successor, Shalmaneser V, was poised and ready to attack a morally bankrupt and militarily weakened nation of Israel. In fact, the scriptures and History tell us that by 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel would be sacked, overrun, and crushed in a humiliating defeat. This chosen nation, they would see their, their own loved ones brutally killed, while those who survived would be hauled off into captivity. Families would be broken up and destroyed. The land promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would be devastated. And economic havoc would be rampant as this once proud nation would be brought to its knees in shame, humiliation, and judgment. And make no mistake, this was, this was actually not the Assyrians' doing. It was God's. He had promised that if they were disobedient to his law, amongst their punishment, listen to Deuteronomy 28, verses 25 to 27. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. 
You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. You actually could read most of that chapter and it just goes on and on and on. And this was just a a very small part of the curses promised if the nation, if the God's people disobeyed God's law, which they did eagerly. And by the time we get to Isaiah the prophet, he prophesies this in Isaiah chapter 8. I want to read verses 11 to 22. Isaiah 8, 11 says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to me, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Everything looks bleak and depressing. And yet, even in the midst of that, Psalm 112 verse 4 reminds us, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Similarly, later, the prophet Zechariah would proclaim in in Zechariah 14 verses 7 to 9, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day or night, but at evening time, there shall be a light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Even in the darkest of days... When God's people have have turned their backs on Him and and are are languishing in blackness, with no hope, without God in the world, even in the darkest of days, He cracks open a door and a little bit of light comes in. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary. He said, in the worst of times, 
God's people have a nevertheless to comfort themselves with, something to allay and balance their troubles. They are persecuted, but not forsaken, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And it is a word, it is a matter of comfort to us when things are at the darkest that he who, as Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, I form light and create darkness, I make well-being and create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. He has appointed both their bounds and he set one, darkness and light, over against the other. And it is he who says, hitherto the dimness shall go, so long it shall last, and no further, no longer. And it, and it is here, in the midst of the apostasy of the nation, that the Lord promises hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's read this. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, before we get to verses six and seven, which are probably familiar to you, we read these often at Christmas. We need to see three promises that lead up to Christ just in these first five verses. And ultimately, all of these point to the grace of the gospel in which the saints of old and we today can find comfort even in the midst of the darkest days. And the first promise is the promise of a great light. Look again at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This past Thursday afternoon, um, I think there were about a hundred of us. I don't know if anybody counted. There was a whole group of people at the courthouse. We stood in front of the courthouse by the fountain here in, in Belfon. And we sang hymns of praise to Christ. Now, on the one hand, this was just simply a, a bunch of Christians singing in public. And I'm sure it looked quaint to the people driving by. 
There were some guys from 600 Pizza that came out and took pictures of us and gave us a thumbs up. On the other hand, we were engaged in a spiritual war against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And our singing of praise to God for the birth of the Christ is our engagement in this battle. Now, I am an Um, an ordinary means of grace kind of guy. And that means that I firmly believe that the real spiritual battle, the real battles that we see in Scripture will be won in this room each Lord's Day as the saints, as His saints assemble to worship. And that happens all over the world, in churches all over the world. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes the church gathered for worship. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, he says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That means that when we gather each Lord's day, We are joining with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We are joining with the innumerable angels in festal, feastal gathering. We've come to proclaim. Every Lord's Day when we come together, we have come to proclaim. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning With God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. As He Himself has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who walk without Christ walk in darkness. They dwell in a land of the shadow of death, in thick darkness, and mortal danger. But the light shines in the darkness. And when the gospel comes to any soul, so comes the light. And that light is the light of the world, and the darkness will never overcome it. Jesus again said, I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Isaiah promises a great light here in chapter 9. And that light is Jesus Christ, born that man no more may die. And the second promise is the promise of of a glorious increase bringing joy. A glorious increase bringing joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, uh, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. All the way back in the book of Genesis, and Ben preached on this uh, a few weeks ago, we can see the roots of these promises. He preached on Genesis 3.15. But in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we see this. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 15 verses 5 to 7, the Lord again says to Abram, And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then in chapter 17, Verses 4 to 8, Genesis 17, we read this. Behold, the Lord continues to speak to Abram. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The Lord has promised to multiply his people the people whom he purchased for his own possession. One author said, The numbers of a nation are its strength and wealth if the numerous be industrious. We know from places like Job chapter 12, verse 23, that it is God who multiplies the nations. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And it follows... That God's people should rejoice at our increasing number. One of our favorite hymns here that we've sung in the last few years is How Sweet and Awful is the Place by Isaac Watts. A church that is sweet and filled with awe sings in verse 6, We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race May with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. I've had people tell me in years past that they like a small country church. They don't really want the church to grow because they like that that small vibe where you know everybody. I get it. But that's kind of selfish too. And it's not up to you or me. It's all up to the Lord. This is the work of the Lord, and we ought to rejoice in the harvest. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The promise here of a glorious increase is not the promise that our church will grow. It's the promise that Christ's church will grow. And Isaiah continues here with a promise, not just of uh, of a great light, not just a promise of a glorious increase leading to rejoicing, but also with a promise of freedom and liberty. Verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden, for the staff for his shoulder, 
the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So why is there rejoicing in verse 3? Why do we sing when we gather together, and we're going to do this in a couple of minutes, why do we sing joy to the world? Let earth receive her king. Why why do we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love? Why do we sing those things even as we see the darkness creeping across the land? Because the Lord has promised. The Lord has promised to remove the burdens of his people. And it's not just our burdens, not just the things that sort of emotionally hold us down, which is what we often think of burdens as. Again, this is a war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and he has promised victory. And so at times, we will sing praises to Christ on the courthouse steps. But regardless of tradition or family plans, every single Lord's Day, we will gather in this place to proclaim joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There is a reminder here in these verses of Gideon's defeat of Midian with only 300 fighting men. I don't know if you remember this story, but Judges chapter 7 recounts it for us. Let me read just a little bit of that. From Judges chapter 7, so Gideon and a hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. Over and over and over throughout Israel's history, we see the Lord delivering his people in miraculous ways. And the torch of liberty is still held high. Freedom and liberty is promised and has come. Luke chapter 4, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But here in Isaiah, the darkness remains. And so we must ask the question, who will do all of this? Who, who will do this? Now just look at the verses again. Look at them in your Bible in front of you. Look at the first five verses as the, as the, the prophetic poetry that they are. Just let, kind of let your eyes roll down over the page. Chapter 8 leaves the people in, the, in, in, in thick darkness. But chapter 9 opens with a sliver of hope. A ray of light begins to break through the darkness. And so it begins in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Does that sound familiar? This, this sliver of light is a great light. It is a light that floods the whole area. And it brings with it joy and harvest, the spoils of war, because the yoke of burden and the rod of oppression have been broken. The boot of trampling and the garments that have been soaked in the blood of battle have been burned up and put away. And this is because of one promised son. This is because of the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Beginning again in the book of Genesis and running all the way through the scriptures, God unfolds for us the drama of redemption and the true essence and meaning of Christmas. Some have called this the, the scarlet thread of redemption that is woven all throughout God's word. Let me give you just a few of the more well-known verses foretelling this promised son. In Genesis 3.15, he is the seed of woman. In Genesis 12.3, he's the offspring of Abraham. In Genesis 49, verse 10, he is of the tribe of Judah. In Numbers 24.17, he is the star that's come out of Jacob. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he is a prophet that is greater than Moses. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, he's the son of David who will reign forever. In Psalm 2, he is the Lord's anointed. In Psalm 22, he is a righteous sufferer. In Psalm 110, he is the king priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Isaiah 7, 14, he is Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant of the Lord. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he is the coming Son of Man. In Micah 5, 2, he is the babe born in Bethlehem. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, he is the greater Gideon who has come and is now here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 700 years before the Magi came with their gold and frankincense and myrrh. 700 years before the angels sang glory to God in the highest. 700 years before the shepherds were watching over their flocks by night. Isaiah gives us really what is the centerpiece of all prophetic prophecy. A child is born. A son is given. But before we see him as mighty God and everlasting Father, we need to see him first. We need to see that he came in earthly humanity. He came in earthly humanity. This mighty God is a child born. This everlasting Father is a son given. That that he would condescend and take upon himself our nature. That he would humble himself and thereby exalt us. He is creatures, sinners. Why would he do this? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To us, a son is given. To us, a child is born. To us, to us, to mankind, not to the angels, a third of whom also sinned, but to us. That's what the the herald angel proclaimed in in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto you, to us, Christ's birth in, in earthly humanity and Him being given as a Son to us is the foundation of all of our hopes. It is the foundation or the the fountain of all of our joys. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, not only did He come in, in earthly humanity, but He also came in heavenly deity. He came in heavenly deity. This son, as Ben preached a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 7, 14, just a couple uh, chapters before this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. 
God with us, the Word made flesh. He is the Son of God, begotten, not made. He is, he is the one of whom Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The voice came from heaven and declared of him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Son came to do the will of the Father, as He Himself said in John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus Christ was both truly God and truly man. And we should see these verses as the, as the announcement of the birth of a king. But not just a king. The king of kings. And we are called to marvel at him. Remember, this was written 700, about 700 years before Christ was born. And and so notice briefly from this, this list of four names here that you're probably familiar with, notice his, this king's majestic character. The king's majestic character. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, I believe that Isaiah 9.6 might just be the single greatest verse in Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easily in the top few if you can rate Scripture verses, which you probably shouldn't do. There's something like 250 names or titles for Jesus throughout the Bible. And Isaiah here brings them all together in a way that encapsulate who he is and what he has done. Wonderful counselor. Jesus is, is wisdom personified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 tells us this. It says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the garden, the serpent, the serpent counseled Eve to follow her heart, to follow her eyes, to follow her desires, to to live out her truth, to find wisdom in the fruit of the tree. And it led to ruin. We were ruined by a counselor, but we are redeemed by a counselor who is called wonderful. And that's probably not a word that we use all that much. Wonderful. Kind of an older word. It seems to be sort of passing away in our general conversation. But that is a word in the Bible that is only used to describe who God is or what he has done. Jesus is our wonderful counselor who leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Mighty God. El Gibor in Hebrew. Gibor is the same word used to describe David's mighty men, mighty warriors of battle. El is the Hebrew word for God. This makes liberals... Any who deny Christ's deity, this makes them crazy. But this term, mighty God, can mean nothing other than what it says. This is an official title for the Son 
who has been given, the child who has been born. This is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus Christ is our mighty God. And then one that's a little bit tricky. Everlasting Father. This is tricky because the Son is not the Father. While they are yet one within the triune Godhead, but but notice that this is a title, same as the others here. It's a title, not necessarily a, a position or a name like we think of. And this title, Everlasting Father, is another description of who Jesus is to those who are His. He is our source. He is our origin. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one of whom Hebrews 1.8 declares, of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. This means that He is our provider, our protector, our Savior. And He is the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 2, those herald angels, they sang of one who would bring peace on earth. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, we are told that this one is the supreme giver of peace because he is the prince of peace. He is the one who will see that the warrior's boot and the bloody garment from verse 5 are going to be used for burning and fuel for the fire. He is the greater Gideon, the judge, who who as in the day of Midian will put an end to the forces of evil who oppose the people of God. Times of darkness, times of despair and death will come to an end. The boots and blood of battle will cease to be, never to appear again. And what what kind of peace does the Prince of Peace bring? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that we can have peace with God. We are no longer His enemies. No longer destined for wrath. The condemnation has been removed. We've been given the right to be called children of God. And this is a peace, verse 7 tells us, that will be without end. And so, and so this Christmas, in the midst of a world that is increasingly cold and dark, bleak and depressing, This afternoon, in the midst of of your family dinner and the unwrapping of presents and whatever your plans are today, take a moment to proclaim this. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. For unto us a Son 
a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we can only say thank you for this indescribable gift. We can only say on this Christmas, thank you for the the bread and the wine. As we come to the table, Lord, we can only say thank you for what Christ did on the cross. That not only was he born, not only did he come in the flesh, but he came to defeat the power of sin and death. He came to seal the fate of God's enemies. And he did that on the cross. He triumphed over them. And so, Lord, we come as a people who are thankful. Remind us of these things today as we leave here and go home and celebrate and rest and rejoice. Write it on our hearts. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.